The wealth tech revolution is now. Wealthstack provides bolder technology strategies and powers a new generation of growth-oriented advisors. Join us in Florida, May 21st to the 24th, and get 20% off now with our discount code WEALTH20. That's WEALTH20, W-E-A-L-T-H-2-0. And be sure to search Wellstack to find out more. Welcome to the Wellstack Podcast. I'm your host, Shannon Rossick, the Director of Wellstack Content and Solutions. In this episode, I'm joined by Scott Leak, Director of Business Development and Senior Consultant at FP Transitions. Today's discussion is all about making data actionable. FB Transition does complete over a thousand valuations a year on independent advisory practices, so I would say they certainly know a thing or two about collecting a lot of data that can help deliver powerful business insights. Scott, appreciate you joining me. Thanks, it's a pleasure. I've honestly been really looking forward to this episode because when I started talking to F- the FP team about interesting content ideas, who we should have on, and shout out to Jess Flynn here, she immediately said, you have to talk to Scott Leak. He's our data guy and absolutely brilliant, <laughs> would be perfect for the podcast. So hope you uh, enjoy your new nickname of the data guy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I uh, I don't know that internally I would be called that by too many people, but I I know a thing or two. <laughs> well, good. Uh, but jokes aside, and you know, for listeners maybe not as familiar with FB Transitions, just give us a quick overview um, and who you ultimately serve. Uh, thanks. So, you know, we we try to be champions of sustainability for the independent wealth management industry. Uh, you know, we really want to fundamentally transform how independent advisory businesses evolve into sustainable, enduring businesses and, and enterprises. You know, we were one of the first, if not the first, to establish true succession planning solutions for advisors. Um, as you mentioned, you know we're, we're home to a very comprehensive and inclusive advisory benchmarking database of over 15,000 valuations and its various data points. Um, we're the largest M&A marketplace for independent financial advisors, uh, doing over 100 M&A transactions a year. Uh, and you know, we consider ourselves to be the leading source for accredited business valuations for financial service firms. Like you said, we do a thousand valuations a year. So having been in business for over 20 years and uh, having done over 2000 succession and continuity plans, and most of those we manage on an annual basis, uh, we do so with a team of about 60 uh, professionals and and growing. Uh, we're based in uh, Lake Oswego, uh, just outside of Portland, Oregon. Like I said, founded in 1999. And for the most part, anyone in a client-facing role falls in one of five departments. And we're really heavily credentialed on our staff as well. So, you know, the valuations team staffed with certified valuation analysts, certified business appraisers, uh, the M&A team's got attorneys on the team. Um, consultants are, you know, like myself with a, either a CFP or we've even got some individuals who previously ran um, operations and, and sold uh, advisory practices. Our analytics team's got CFAs on it. And then we've got a legal department with more attorneys and paralegals. So highly credentialed, uh, providing truly end-to-end M&A and succession planning support. Fantastic. Appreciate that background. But all right, Scott, we've got to get into it. You know what's coming first. Stats all, folks. And I feel like this segment is especially fitting for this episode since it is all about the data. 
So first one I want to talk about, you know, one of the areas, as you mentioned, that FB Transition specializes in is helping firms really navigate the complexities of succession planning. So the first data point I want to throw out is 21.1%. And over the last five years, single owner firms grew uh, net new clients by 11.9%, while firms with two or more owners grew by 21.1%. What would you say is the takeaway here? Well, I think, first of all, a lot of advisors are really quick to measure increases in AUM or revenue. And while those are important, measuring net new assets or net new clients takes out the volatility we've seen in the markets, particularly, you know, with you had a huge spike at the beginning of the year and then last year was pretty volatile. Um, so, you know, if you if you really look at it long term, like over the last decade, we had a pretty long bull market uh, before COVID and the markets can actually mask potential red flags and growth. And so this measurement can be a leading indicator of stagnant growth and potentially even declining value. So in particular here, the stark difference in growth between single owner firms and those with two or more owners really highlights an overlooked benefit of succession planning. And so by bringing in additional partners into ownership, you can help address that issue. If you wait to the last minute to sell equity with the hope of let's maximize my value, I I don't want to hold, I don't want to sell to anyone. I want to wait to the last minute to sell. It can actually be counterproductive. Um, so this is why I, I often refer to succession planning as a secret growth weapon for advisors. There's no motivator quite like equity ownership for second generation employees. And in your opinion, what data should advisors be looking at, especially when it comes to these major decisions around succession planning or even M&A? Well, the two most important numbers, I'd say, are 50 and 20. Um, so succession planning should start around age 50 or 20 years before your desired retirement age. So that's a little bit of a cheat answer. I wouldn't really call that a data point, but I really want to stress the importance of advanced planning. So if you're a founder, what we call a G1 of your business, you want to have your G2s on board probably two to five years before they're even worthy of being eligible for equity. Uh, you want to make sure that they're a good fit to be a long-term employee, let alone have ownership. Then if you're going to sell them your first tranche of, let's say, 10 to 20%, you want to wait another two to five years after you sell them that first tranche to make sure that them moving into ownership is a good fit as well. So you're already looking at 10 years before you sold more than 10 to 20% of your company. So from a true data perspective, I would look at a few, and, and it's important to look at these kind of in combination. So obviously we just talked about a really important one, those net new client or net new asset numbers. If you're, you know, are you growing substantially? If not, that's something you really need to consider addressing before you bring people into ownership because they need growth in order to pay for their ownership. And then I like to look at households per professional. So this gives you kind of a cursory look at your capacity to handle new clients in the first place. Oftentimes, slow growth isn't really a sales or marketing problem. It's actually more of one of capacity. And then finally, from here, I think now it's a really optimal time for advisors to look at your pay per professional. Um, We've got a talent shortage in the industry, and particularly among those that would be eligible to be G2s. So if you aren't offering them equity and you aren't even paying them at or above median for their role, it's only a matter of time before someone else will. And speaking of M&A, and if the rumors are true, 2023 is possibly shaping up to be another great year for financial advisory acquisitions. You know, we're, we're seeing the industry really continue to consolidate. There's been a rise in the independent model. And as all this is happening, we're also seeing advisory firms turn into tech firms. I guess my question is, when two firms agree to a merger or acquisition, is it fair to say that one of the first questions that has to be answered is what tech stays and what goes? Because it seems like if it doesn't make you stronger, better, faster, stronger, <laughs> 
fix it or drop it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And after you've addressed human capital, which mm-hmm. probably should be the first thing, tech is probably the next one you'd want to address. And particularly in a merger as opposed to an acquisition, the whole point in coming together was to build capacity and scale. And tech is going to be vital in doing so. So I can't really improve your margin simply by hiring more and more associates every time you want to reach the next AUM or number of household milestone. So to your point, devoting the time to mapping out your operations, workflow, and efficiency needs to be done primarily through technology. Um, So I would say reach out to the tech vendors that both organizations are using currently. Let them vie for the business going forward. Show them how they're going to help make you stronger, better, faster in your new combined organization. Good point. <laughs> Let them duke it out. I like that. Yeah. So l- let's discuss 400,000. Last year, average technology spend among RIAs between about 50 million and 350 million in AUM was around 25,000. And firms who spent more than the average in-, in tech spend versus those who spent less on tech, those who spent more on average, you know, around that, you know, 50K mark on tech, that actually translated into an additional 400,000 in annual revenue. Obviously, tech is a topic near and dear to me, so it continues to validate that technology clearly can enable growth. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me, the stories that data can tell us. Um, I was really curious about the effect of technology spending on all the other KPIs in a practice. So when I was looking at our database and looking at KPIs from know, the 15,000 valuations we've done, I was expecting to find something different here, to be honest with you. At first, what stood out was how firms that spent more on technology on average had larger clients. I assume this was because larger clients might be more demanding of client-facing technology, but when I accounted for other variables, it was really just more simply a function of larger firms spent more on tech and pure dollars, and for the most part, larger firms tend to have larger clients. But for the most part, all firms are spending about 1.7% of their revenue on tech, which in my mind is a little too low. Agreed. So this is one of those instances where the benchmarking data might say, this is how much everyone's spending. But that doesn't mean they're right. And so you know, when I looked at it to figure out, all right, who are those outliers that are spending more and what does differentiate them when you account for those variables, such as everyone's spending about the, or in the same AUM range, this $400,000 number is what stood out as a really stark difference. So if an advisor is debating whether or not to increase their tech spending, it seems to me that spending another 25000 in expenses for technology, it can lead to an extra 400000 in revenue. seems like pretty good ROI to me. Absolutely. And I did see in a recent um, Transitions blog that it was stated that from a growth and profitability standpoint, there are three areas where your firm can benefit from leveraging the right technology. And that's client experience, operational efficiency, and marketing. And I know FP has been in the news headlines a fair amount the last uh, couple of years around partnering with firms like FMG, Trade PMR, for example. You know, how have these tech collaborations helped FP Transitions better serve clients? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about about those relationships that we've been we've been forming uh, with other organizations. You know, FMG is a really great opportunity uh, uh, for us to fill a gap in an area where we're we're doing a lot of consulting on growth, but we don't necessarily have expertise on organic growth. And so it's closely related to our services, but yet still different enough that we need some help there. So. I can work with our clients. Um, you know, we, we have a service called our equity management solution, which is a membership service uh, where advisors get valuation annually, continuity planning and benchmarking. And I can advise them on how much more they should spend on marketing or how much more they should spend on technology or if they're overspending on those, which isn't too often. And, and then the effect that that can have on their other KPIs. 
So when I'm advising someone on what are some effective M&A strategies to boost inorganic growth, I don't, again, <laughs> really have a clue how to help them with organic growth. So when I'm asked, okay, Scott, you're telling me I need to spend X more on marketing. What do I spend it on? FMGs and natural collaborator funds. That's great. So that leads me to my next question then. What are some examples of advisors you've worked with who have taken action with their, with their data and what were the ultimate results? So I did a, a webinar last year where we really honed in on, on KPIs and, and the effect that they can have on the business, which ones you should really focus on depending on you know, kind of what cycle you might be or where you're at in the cycle of your business. One of the great examples I use from that, and I'll, I'll talk about it here as well, because it's, it's such a good case study, is that you know, we had this firm that had really high AUM compared to their peer group. And I'll talk about this um, a little bit more later, but our, our benchmarking data, we do it a little bit differently than how you might see the custodians or dimensional or some others do it, where we, we benchmark advisors based on their value, not based on their AUM. So this one advisor that I worked with in particular, you know, his AUM was, I think, around 200 million, but his peer group was around 165, but they were worth the same. And he's like, Scott, what the heck? Why am I worth, why am I worth the same amount as a firm that's got 35 million less than AUM? I said, well, let's look at the rest of your KPIs and the data is going to tell us the story and answer it for us. And sure enough, found that although they had more AUM, they had about the same or even a little bit less revenue than firms that were smaller than them. So then we peeled the layer and looked at what is the fee they're being charged? And they're charging about 82% of what their peer group was charging. So their fees were a little bit too low, even though their client sizes were about the same. And then we looked at the expense per household, and it was much higher than the average that the benchmarking data was telling us. So then I'm like, okay, well, why are we having more expenses per client? And it turns out uh, that this firm was drastically overspending on payroll. But what the nice thing was that it wasn't so much that they were overpaying per person, they just had more people and more of them happened to be in licensed roles. So while the data was making things look bad, they were only bad if you looked at it in a really short period of time. This firm, what it had done, had made the choice to invest in the business and doing so starting with bringing new advisors. So we see that they were overstaffed and licensed professionals, but they actually were handling half as many clients. So what I was able to do with our data is forecast for them how much capacity had they created by bringing in these people. And sure enough, this $195 million firm in AUM had the capacity to grow to probably about $340 million before they had to hire the next person. So those, those expense numbers were going to come down. Those revenue numbers were going to go up because they were positioned for revenue to grow much faster than the future expenses were going to grow. So that's one good example of a firm that worked with their data and, and was able to take action on it. Um, another firm we did succession planning work with um, over the years, we've done a couple tranches and they're now working on their G3s coming in. But looking at some of their data points, you know, they were they were really struggling. And, and by doing succession planning, like I said, it's kind of that secret growth weapon. They had below average recurring revenue, below average expense percentages, AUM per client, profit per client, profit per professional, all of them were below their benchmarks. We went in, we did succession planning, we turned a junior advisor into a senior advisor, made him an equity partner. He then became really hungry for growing the business. And now that he's getting profit distributions, he wants those profit distributions to get higher because the higher the profit distributions, the faster he can pay off his note to the original owner. So he's working harder. The owner is like, well, this young kid's now upstaging me. I want to go out. There's this, we call this the rejuvenation effect. So both of them really got hungry for it. And a couple of years later, although the owner had at that point sold 50% of his shares 
and his value of owning 50% was twice as much as his 100% stake was when he owned all of it. So they took their recurring revenue up 27%, expense percentage was improved 40%, AUM per client went up 85%, profit per client went up 200%, and profit per professional went up 151%. So all of these things were aided by implementing a really sound equity pathway strategy and succession planning. Well, the data does not lie, but I want to go back to something you mentioned about benchmarking. And can you dig in a little bit more and explain how FB Transitions approach to benchmarking is different? Yeah. So like I mentioned, we we really try to differentiate um, based on value and benchmark against that because AUM, while it's a constant and pretty typical thing for people to measure in our industry, it is not necessarily perfectly correlated to valuation. And that's, that's really our focus here. If we're going to build sustainable enduring businesses, we're going to help with M&A, we're going to help with succession planning, it really comes down to value. And like that example I gave, you can have firms of the same AUM and they can be worth very different value points. So we think that is a better measure uh, to begin the benchmarking from rather than AUM or even revenue. So that's a big piece. The other thing is we make every single benchmark bespoke to every advisor. So unlike getting a big report that says, okay, you're between 250 million AUM and 500 million AUM, this is your cohort. We actually create a custom cohort for each advisor that says, all right, you're worth 3.5 million in value. Here are 40 other firms that on average are also worth 3.5 million in value. And here's how they compare on all these different metrics. So making each and every benchmark bespoke to that advisor is another huge differentiator for us in our benchmarking strategy. So any other pieces of advice then for firms considering, you know, some type of major transition, you know, where they can start essentially? Um, You know, I I think it's about being intentional, understand the why behind your motivation here. So I talk to a lot of firms who want to grow via M&A. And when I peel the layers, I learn they often want to do so because they've stopped growing organic. And so unfortunately, I don't find firms to be successful in M&A if you're not also growing organically. Um, so if you think about this, just like if you're if you're an asset manager and you're picking stocks, the only difference here is that you're buying shares in a public company versus a private one. Um, otherwise, the fundamentals you care about should still be the same. So if you're going to be investing in another business, if you're going to be buying in as a junior advisor or if you're going to be buying a firm and just buying them outright, what you might want to care about more is future earnings. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. What are future earnings going to be? So you want a firm that's going to be growing more than you're going to want a stagnant one, right? So you're looking at firms that have high profit margins. That profit can then be used to invest further in the business or pay out a hearty profit distribution. That's going to be much more appealing than a firm with low margins. But taking the data aside, really most importantly is fit, You know, making sure that you're culturally aligned, because I think something people don't think enough about when you're doing an acquisition or you're doing a merger is you have to keep working with these people. So if you're going to have a nasty... Uh, you know, two you know, lawyers on each side fighting over the deals of a, of a transition, by the time you're done, you're not going to want to work together. So keep that in mind with negotiations too. And so why we take kind of a, what we call a non-advocate approach to M&A consulting. We don't represent the buyer. We don't represent the seller. We're really representing the deal. We're trying to get the two sides to come together. And when one side might be saying, hey, I want this. And the other's like, no, that's too high. You need to come down. We can actually kind of be that person in the middle that said, we do a hundred of these a year and we can tell each of you like, no, this guy's right. You do need to come down a little bit. So helping them come together and uh, understand that 
this is something that you're going to need to work together long-term. Most advisors who do a sell transaction actually are doing what we call a sell and state. They're not just walking away anymore. They're selling and staying around for another five or seven years in most Great cases. advice. I appreciate that, Scott. But it is time for segment number two of this episode, Ask Us Anything, where we've gone out to LinkedIn and Twitter uh, and asked them to submit questions that they want answered by you. So let's see who's dropped into the DMs or commented this week. We did have a question on LinkedIn uh, for you. How is equity market performance, because there's a big spike to the start of the year, impacting valuations? Good question. So sticking with my kind of stock picking analogy here, <laughs> um, most firms that are doing M&A are not looking to do market timing. So they're, this is a buy and hold strategy. So short-term spikes or drops in the market really don't affect valuation that much because most acquirers are looking at a buy and hold strategy. So it generally doesn't affect valuation all that much if the markets go up or down a little bit, because that's not really what the buyers are interested in. They're more interested in what's the capacity of this firm. Again, what are future earnings going to be? So if you're doing something like a discounted cash flow analysis, market fluctuations don't really have much impact on that. And uh, this must have been a friend of yours because somebody wanted to know how your golf game is going. <laughs> That's one of the questions. <laughs> uh, terrible. Um, you know, <laughs> since I joined FP about a year and a half ago, I've been on such a high from from what I'm doing. I'm having such a blast here. My golf game is not not as uh, consistent as it used to be. I'm not playing nearly as much, but um, I, I I'd still I'd still play someone from. <laughs> well, appreciate the honesty. And he did follow up with another good question and said, what's one piece of wealth tech that's not on many folks radar, but has the potential to be a game changer? Ooh, <laughs> Ooh that is a good question. Um, I mean, I, I think the industry's got a pretty good handle on it. And I'm, I'm not a technology expert by any means. I, I knew the space much better in my 22 career, 22 year career at TD Ameritrade before I was at FP. But you know, selfishly, I'll, I'll say, you know, we've got a pretty, pretty powerful tool um, with the benchmarking data that we've created. And I mean, granted, it's a proprietary tool that we can't, we don't give out to advisors. But using us as consultants, um, the technology that we've created to to do benchmarking and and to help advisors with forecasting. You know, that's another thing, again, that separates uh, our benchmarking from, let's say, the custodians, where you've got this static report that says this is where all your, your data points lie. What's really powerful is looking at it's like, okay, well, if I want to change one of those KPIs, how does that affect all the other ones if I do? And my selfish answer, because I wanted to jump in on this, and it's starting to get on people's radar, but all around uh, the SEC rule change, allowing advisors to use testimonials and online reviews. So you're starting to see companies like Wealth Tender and Amplify kind of crop up and capitalize on this to help drive that more organic growth for advisors. So I'm actually really excited to see, you know, the tech forward advisory firms that are embracing this, willing to take this on. You know, we're kind of the last industry to adopt that. I mean, heck, I Google all doctors, hotels, restaurants. I look up tons of online reviews before I make any decisions. So it's about dang time that our industry gets on board with that too. So totally me, that would be, that would be my game changer. Yeah. I mean, as much as I travel for work, you know, and I go to a new city and I have no idea where to go to eat, you know, I'm, I'm the same way. Like if, if they don't have good reviews, if it's not, if it's not at four and a half stars or above on Google, I'm, I'm not going to bother. Yeah. And if you're dealing with my money, I would hope at least. Four Absolutely. And a half stars. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right. Well, Scott, I appreciate you being put on the spot and, and your answers here, but we have come to our final and my favorite segment, Stack It or Whack It, <laughs> uh, where I'm going to throw out a few technologies, not necessarily well tech related, and you tell me if it's essentially worth the hype or not. And I must confess, I did a little online sleuthing and digging and stumbled across the fact that you uh, seem to be a wine savant. So the first technology I want you to stack or whack is wine vending machines with biometric scanners. Yes, this is a thing I found online. It would essentially mean that people would use a biometric scanning device such as, you know, a retina scanner uh, to determine that they're essentially legal drinking age and, you know, they could wave their smartphone in front of the vending machine and boom, a can of wine or however a bottle <laughs> comes out. <laughs> Interesting. Um, well, first of all, I, I appreciate the compliment. I'm, I'm probably more of an idiot wine savant, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Um, you know, being in, in the industry that we're in, I'm I'm a big advocate for advisors and the value that they bring to their clients. And there's no amount of substitution uh, for an expert and their their position. So when I'm at a restaurant, for example, even though I know wine fairly well, I like using the sommelier every chance I get. I like knowing what are the hidden gem that they put on the menu that they didn't expect to get ordered, but they geek out that it's on their menu. Um, at, at an airport though, or a food court, if I had that vending machine, I didn't have an expert to go to. That's kind of a cool idea. I'd say stack it. All right. I love it. So number two, and we already talked about it a little bit, but obviously you are a big golfer as well. So I, I stumbled across um, these golf smart sensors and essentially what they are is you can attach them to every club in your bag. And once the sensors are on, they feed data right into the app. And so it analyzes your performance with every club in the bag. Is that too much data, not enough data, or just really got to love the game and know that you can grip a certain club better, swing one harder, stack it or whack it? <laughs> um, well, the, the whack it certainly seems appropriate for the analogy <laughs> here with golf. But, um, you know, your swing doesn't really vary much from like your seven iron to your eight iron or or your five to your six. So I'm, I'm trying to think, why do I need 14 sensors, one for each club? Um, I'd say you maybe need one for your driver, one for an iron and one for wedges. So three of them at the most. Although if they had one that specialized in a putting stroke, that's something that's underrated that doesn't get analyzed well enough because that's really where most of your strokes come from. So that'd be interesting if they could specialize in a putting stroke. But again, kind of like the last one, um, like financial planning, handling. If you were to hand over to a client Money Guide Pro and said, here you go, you're all set. You've got what you need. That's not going to be nearly half as beneficial as your advisor who's analyzed hundreds of other financial situations coach you through it. So I think golf swing analysis is kind of the same way. There's no substitute for coaching. So, I mean, if you look at like Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy on the, on tour, like those guys all still have swing coaches. I think a do it yourself um, is probably not the right approach. If it's not, if the pros can't do it, amateurs certainly can't. So I'm going to say whack it on that. And I just need to say thank you because you are the first guest I've had that has related my wacky technology back to financial planning or our industry. So very, <laughs> very impressive. I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. No, this was fun. <laughs> well, I, I very much enjoyed it. And Scott, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and learning more about FP Transitions. So please feel free to tell listeners where they can find out more. Thank you. Uh, so you can go to fptransitions.com. 
We've got links to scores of resources on, uh, we've got white papers, recorded webinars on all topics, continuity planning, succession planning, building enterprises, um, you know, anything you need from, uh, from an M&A or, or succession standpoint. Uh, we do a lot of consulting services as well. I mentioned we've got our, our EMS program uh, where advisors can get an annual valuation, a continuity plan to make sure that they are at the very least covered uh, for the event of their death or disability. I think that's one of the most fundamental things every advisor needs to have. Um, and that can be a good kind of dry run or rehearsal for later exit planning under your own terms. And if you want to schedule a uh, time to talk to one of our consultants, uh, you can schedule that uh, directly on the website as well. And you can catch FB Transitions at our upcoming Wealth Management Edge event, uh, which WealthStack is a part of. So catch the team there as well, May 21st through 24th in Hollywood, Florida. And, and I will be there at that too, Shannon. See? All right. And be sure to catch Scott there in person as well. And you can chat with him about all things data because <laughs> he is now the data guy. So thank you again, Scott. Looking forward to obviously having you and the team at our event here in a few months. And uh, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for more updates. And thank you all for listening today. The wealth tech revolution is now. Wellstack provides bolder technology strategies and powers a new generation of growth-oriented advisors. Join us in Florida May 21st to the 24th and get 20% off now with our discount code WEALTH20. That's WEALTH20. W-E-A-L-T-H-2-0, and be sure to search Wellstack to find out more.